0: On today's episode of Tactical Faith Radio, we will talk to Dr. Lydia McGrew about her book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel in Acts. Thank you for joining us on Tactical Faith Radio.
1: This is this, 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 this a game
0: Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. God. <laughs> Who was Jesus for real? Sometimes we get How caught up in the sex. world. We're but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about
1: our real faith.
0: We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome, welcome to Tactical, to Tactical,
1: faith, Tactical Radio. faith
0: Radio. Hey, this is Matt Burford. Um, what a wonderful interview I had with Dr. Lydia McGrew. But I want to take a second to tell. Uh, the audience, who she is, and uh, a little bit of her CV. Uh, she has a PhD in English literature from Vanderbilt University. Uh, she has her areas of specialization are formal and informal epistemology in English literature, specifically in the Renaissance non dramatic literature. Uh, I like the way she describes herself on her page as an analytic philosopher, a homemaker, a homeschooling mom, an author. Uh, what a wonderful time that I had with her. Uh, talking about her book, talking about evangelism, talking about how to reach people, especially using uh, undesigned coincidences that she writes about in her book, Hidden in Plain View. Uh, this was a fun uh, interview for me, and what a wonderful thing for us at Tactical Faith to be, to be able to uh, find the, the very best content that's out there and bring it to you. Now, we can't do this alone. Again, we need help. Uh, if we're going to do our task and our mission in the state of Alabama, we need those that are out there as partners to come alongside of us and to help us do our work. If you are interested in helping us go to matt at tacticalfaith.com. Uh I suggest you go to our website, www.tacticalfaith.com. Send us an email. Uh, you know, try to communicate with us. We would love to have an event in your area. We would love to bring one of our speakers in your area, or even just to sit with you and uh, maybe cast out a vision on what you would like to do in your school or in your church or community. Again, thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. It is my joy and my pleasure to bring on one of my favorite authors, a person whose work has been very important and significant in how, in, in how I teach over the last two years, and a book that I hold near and dear to me, which is called Hidden in Plain View. Uh, and there's these, this idea called Undesigned Coincidences that I get the privilege of going around as a state missionary to teach I will actually be teaching Undesigned Coincidences in a church in Scottsboro, Alabama, this weekend. And I I want to tell our listeners, if, if you really want to get an argument that uh, keeps the Bible close and keeps it true and significant and keeps it important, and it will help you in your devotional life and in your evangelism kind of tactics and strategies, hidden in plain view, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts. Dr. Lydia McGrew, thank you for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: Um, One of the things that I do, uh, Dr. Lydia, Dr. McGrew, is that I go around and I teach evangelism and apologetics uh, to all the kind of Baptist churches here in the state. Through my nonprofit, Tactical Faith, we do other um, churches, but I primarily focus on my, my denomination, um, in the area of evangelism and apologetics and talking, uh, how do you think Christians can fully prepare themselves to communicate effectively in today's culture?
1: You know, that's a really good question, Matt, and it's a tough question because are so many different aspects. There's the spiritual aspect, you have to have your own relationship with the Lord, and then there's the intellectual aspect of understanding your faith. There's the personal aspect, knowing the audience and knowing how to interact one thing that I, I do want to say, because I think sometimes people who are interested in my work are what I might call thinky people. They're they're apologists and um, people who are into that, the intellectual defense of the faith, which is great. What I want to say there is to spend much more time preparing and understanding your faith and the evidence than you spend debating it with unbelievers. And I would say especially online, as a general rule, I would say don't go on to skeptical boards or sites and just kind of take on all comers. Hey, throw anything you like at me. That will, uh, that will sap your time. It'll keep you from being well-prepared. Um, and the other thing is don't think that because you're interested in Christian apologetics, your next move should be to put yourself out there and to do live debates. Um, live debates are a niche calling, and some people like William and Craig are called to it. They're excellent at it. But not everybody is called to that. So I would say prepare yourself to communicate by study and prayer, and then choose your audiences with whom to share your faith from among those who are interested in listening and have questions. And at that point, don't be afraid or ashamed to say if you don't have an answer and, and that you'll research it further. Um, but, but choose your audience carefully.
0: Tell me a little bit about your book, Hidden in Plain View. Um, I've used it. I think the world of it. Um, But give me a definition of undesigned coincidences, and um, how do you think these undesigned coincidences can help Christians speak about their faith effectively?
1: What I like to call undesigned coincidences, and I thought of this after I wrote the book, so uh, I wish I had thought of it before, but I call an undesigned coincidence an incidental coincidence interlocking that points to truth. There will be perhaps a fact mentioned casually in one gospel, and it'll interlock with a fact mentioned casually in another gospel. We'll get to some examples in a couple of minutes, but what this does is it points to a world of reality behind both of them, where different people, different witnesses, are noticing different things that all fit together. Now, if I have a a bunch of these, and, and I do, have a bunch of these. Strong undesigned coincidences among the Gospels or between Acts and Paul's letters, this can give me confidence that the authors knew their stuff, that they were good, reliable reporters, and it shows me that they were not just copying from each other or even copying from a common source. Instead, they really had independent access to what really happened. This is really relevant in helping me to share my faith because it allows me to have confidence. I'm not just believing something out of uh, wish fulfillment, or something like that, or wishful thinking, where it's actually something that's invented and can't hold up to scrutiny. It can give me confidence in that historicity of of these books in the New Testament.
0: You talk about collusion, right? Uh, the the idea that collusion is is bad. If um, in terms of collusion, if you're going to co- go and and seek out a story. And you have multiple testimonies about a, a similar event. You're not looking for collusion, correct? You're you're looking for something, you're looking for something else that's a little bit more verifiable. What 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 is that?
1: Well, yeah. So collusion, of course, um, has two different possible meanings. One meaning could be simply that the people do one another and influence one another. Um, Maybe if you and your wife are both telling a story, you might remind each other of certain things. Oh, don't you remember this happened before that, and so forth. It's a kind of, uh, it's an innocent collusion, but it's still not the very strongest form of testimony. And then you can have collusion to make stuff up, of course, where, you, you know, I'll say this and you say that, and then people will believe us even though it's not really true. That's a sort of a vicious collusion. But I, ideally what we want is for each person be supplying something that the other doesn't have so that there's some degree of what we call independence, both causal independence and uh, what we philosophers talk about, we talk about probabilistic independence, where they really have some knowledge of, of the event, you know, that if you drew little arrows you would draw an arrow from the event to each of the witnesses that wouldn't go only from one witness to the other as if, you know, John is just getting it from Joe. But John actually knows something about what happened on his own. So that's what we want. We want some degree of independence. And sure, there would be some degree of dependence. If you and your wife are both telling a story to somebody, maybe you have reminded each other of some facts. And then those, you know, you're, you're not totally independent on. But then there are going to be parts that you remember, that she doesn't remember, that you just say, and vice versa. And those form a larger coherent picture that the person would not get if he just talked to one
0: of you. Well, let's, let's give an example. Can you give an example of maybe two or three of these undesigned coincidences, uh, and especially in terms of what is your favorite one, and maybe also which ones do you think are the most persuasive?
1: That's really hard because um, a lot of times the most important thing is that the, the person who's speaking loves the undesigned coincidence, and has made it his own. So it's not like there's some super objective ranking. You know, this is the most persuasive one, and then that's number two most persuasive one. Um, the most persuasive one is often going to be the one that the speaker knows well enough to present persuasively. And it is always interesting to me to see what strikes different people. And it's it's often different. You know, one person will say, I really like that. And then mm-hmm. someone else will say, I really liked that other one, you know. And that's why we need a lot of them, because um, they take a certain amount of, of uh, pondering to get them, a certain amount of uh, sort of thinking about them, and different ones will strike different people. So I would say in any given conversation, you know, pick one that you can present uh, vividly and give it to him. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give one that I, I use a lot because it's short. So this isn't just because it's persuasive, though it is, but also because it's short. So this one would concern um, Herod and his servants. It's often the first one I, I discuss. So there's a, a story in Matthew about um, Herod who is talking to his servants about who Jesus is. And he he's kind of superstitious. And he says to them, This must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. That is why so many miracles are done by him. And this then explains or is explained uh, by Matthew by saying that Herod had put John the Baptist to death. So he's feeling sort of superstitious about it and thinking that maybe Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead. Now the passage resembles the Gospel of Mark quite a bit, the story of of uh, the beheading of John the Baptist. There are a lot of verbal similarities, there may even be some dependence. Uh, maybe Matthew had read Mark, but that phrase to his servants is unique to Matthew. It is not found in Mark, It's not found in any other Gospel, to whom was Herod speaking. And you might think to yourself, uh, oh well, how would Matthew know that Herod, what Herod was saying in private to his servants? I bet he just made that part up to make it sound interesting. Because otherwise, how would he know? Well, when we turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke 8, this is not the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. It's a completely different context. Luke is listing some women who followed Jesus out of uh, Galilee, and he gives their names. Mary Magdalene is one of them, and so forth. And he gets to, and Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager. Now this is just dropped in there by Luke in passing, and then he moves on. So now we know how the Christians, including Matthew, could have known what uh, Herod was saying in private to his servants, because one of his high-placed servants was evidently supportive. He allowed his wife to even uh, contribute to Jesus' ministry and to uh, go and even travel with Jesus. And so this explains the question, it answers the question that we have in Matthew that's one of the most exciting kinds of connections you can have is that kind of question and answer connection between them. And they're so casual, you know, it's not as though Luke read Matthew and said, Ooh, I'll make up, make this up about Herod's uh, household manager. And I'll put it into a completely unrelated passage just to, just to fit together with that casual phrase in Matthew to his servants. That's, that's not believable at all. So that's, that's pretty exciting. Um, I have several different undesigned coincidences that I use in in presentations. I like to keep my presentation fresh. I don't always like to use a new, you know, use the exact same one. So a new one I just used recently, it concerns the cleansing of the temple. And I I especially like this because people question the cleansing of the temple in the Gospel of John. And they'll say, oh, well, John puts it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, so... And then it's at the end of Jesus' ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so maybe John moved it. Well, I think Jesus cleansed the temple twice. I don't think there's any problem with that. I have often stood outside of the same abortion clinic twice, so I think Jesus could cleanse the temple twice. People do these kinds of symbolic protests on more than one occasion in the same place. Well, there's an undesigned coincidence that actually supports this. In Mark uh, 3.22, We are in the middle of of this controversy that Jesus is having in in Galilee, and it says that um, these people had come from Jerusalem, this is very early in Mark's Gospel, to listen to Jesus and to hear him, and they're obviously very antagonistic. They say, he he casts out devils by by Beelzebul, the prince of devils. They're really antagonistic to Jesus. So... Here he is in, in Mark. We have no explanation for why, so early in Jesus' ministry, there were people being sent by the Jewish leaders all the way from uh, Jerusalem, all the way north to Galilee, to come in there and just give Jesus a hard time and challenge him. Why was that? Well, in in John, Jesus has already been in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover and has cleansed the temple. And they've, they've asked him, you know, what sign he gives them to show them that he has the authority to do this. And he said this very cryptic and annoying thing, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, you know, he's, he's not uh, given way for a moment. He's been very, very defiant. And so they're antagonistic to him because of that. I think that's a very plausible explanation for why, in Mark, we find such early opposition to Jesus coming all the way from Jerusalem. That one's not in the book, by the way. Um, I've, I've run into that one more recently in an article by an Australian uh, author named uh, Chapel. So those are two that, um, one of them, in a sense, old, the one about hearing the servants that I give often, and one of them pretty new, or at least new to me, about the cleansing of the temple and the Beelzebul controversy um, that I give pretty often. Now, would I say that they're my favorites? They're they're a couple of my favorites, but um, I have different favorites at different times.
0: Sure. Sure. Uh, That's fantastic. There's two things I want to say about that. One is you keep saying exciting, and I think that's what's so fun about this work, especially for somebody like me that's able to showcase this and see it work in the local setting, which I'm sure you are too, but uh, I'm able to see the light turn on to Christians and I'm not doubting their faith or their salvation experience, but what I what it's fun to watch is for them to realize, whoa, these stories might actually be true. <laughs> you know?
1: Exactly. And they, and I think it removes that kind of fuzzy Sunday school aura Yeah. From the story. You know, this is not Jesus I'm flannel graphed. This is Jesus <laughs> walking around yeah. on on the like now I'm dating myself there. How many of your Know what flannel graph even is. So I guess I'm showing my age. But, you know, it's not, these are not just sweet, pious stories. They're stories that actually happen. And I think people love that. That is the way in which it really can rejuvenate people's uh, reading of the Bible, yeah. that people can read the Bible in a whole new way to start thinking about these as real events. And they fit together because they're different people's accounts of the same real event. You know, um, I use different undesigned coincidences for different reasons. Like, I might use one to answer redaction theories of, of, the, of the gospel. So, like, if somebody says that anything that's in Matthew that's not in Mark must just be something that Matthew made up, well, then I can use that about to his servants and say, no, this is unique to Matthew, but it, is, uh, it appears to be confirmed. Or if, if I'm answering, you know, that John moved the day of the temple cleansing, I can use the, the other one I just gave. So they have all these different purposes that you might use them for. Go ahead. You had something else you were going to say about it. No, itself. it
0: was just it, you're inviting, you're also inviting the audience to search for them themselves. You kind of do that in the book in a little in a little way of saying, this has not been an exhausted, go find them on your own. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know if this is this is to the point of an undesigned coincidence, but I found, you know, you have a little blurb where it says, after the Lord's Supper, they sang songs. So I, I did a little Google search and I said, well, what are you seeing after the Passover? And then I realized Oh, you sing the Hallel Psalms, so it's fun to go to the Hallel Psalms, which most people agree that that's what you sing after Passover, and that's possibly what the Jesus and the disciples sang. Then you read the Hallel Psalms and think, "Whoa, Jesus was speaking about himself," and here you mm-hmm. have an, you have this interlocking kind of. Now the story has come; it's now HD. It's in super mm-hmm. HD, you know, and you're like, I now can sing the songs that Jesus was singing that were about himself before they go, because it's a Messianic-type song. It speaks about suffering and, and going to suffering. It's an amazing devotional experience. And before you know it, the entire story has come alive. I loved my time in seminary. I did. I, if I could go back to my d or even my MDiv, I would. I enjoyed it. But sometimes it, they overcomplicated the story for me. Yes. And I think, for me, what you have done in this book brilliantly is to not oversimplify but remind me that it is a story in a real, true story that has significance and power, and, and it's, it has
1: it, it has that power because it's true.
0: Exactly, exactly. And for me to be able as a messenger to go and help and train people of these occurrences is just it's a it's a huge honor of mine, and I'm so glad. Uh, that you you did this, and now there, this was an argument taken from somebody else centuries before, correct?
1: Right. So back in the in the seventeen hundreds, the eighteenth century, there was a uh, man named William Paley, and most people think of the the watchmaker argument that he has for natural theology, which is also good for design. Um, but what's less well-known is that he coined uh, this phrase, and undesigned coincidence, and he gave a few examples. He especially wrote about Acts and uh, Paul's letters. He had a book called The Horai Paul, and I. And uh, I love that that book, and that was where he really got, got this going. And then in the 19th century, a guy named J.J. Blunt, a clergyman in England, he expanded it, he applied it to the Gospels even more than Paley had had a chance to do, and a couple of people who wrote editions, who did, like, editions of Paley's Evidences of Christianity, uh, T.R. Burke, J.S. and they did more stuff about undecided coincidence, so it was very popular during that time, and then it kind of fell into disuse. People just kind of lost track of it. And then here in the 21st century, you know, here we are 150 years later, and, uh, on this argument in the Gospels and started bringing it up. My husband, Tim McGrew, uh, brought it up in for for both the Gospels and Act and brought it to my attention, and uh, Peter Williams, the British scholar, has, has talked about undesigned coincidences in connection with the Gospels as well. So it's having this sort of renaissance here in the 21st century.
0: Well, thank you so much for doing it. It's going to have ripple effects throughout the kingdom, especially. Uh, well, if I have anything to do with it, because I've enjoyed it and going to enjoy spending the rest of my life trying to search for more. Can you tell us what you're working on right now?
1: Right now, um, I am actually, in a sense, I could say writing two books. Um, One of them is hopefully going to come out, Lord willing, before the end of this year. It's called The Mirror or the Mask, Liberating the Gospels from Literary Devices. And in that book, I defend the straightforward historical reliability of the Gospels against certain ideas that are current in evangelical scholarship today, uh, from scholars like uh, Michael R. Lacona and Craig Evans. And in these theories, they say that the Gospel authors sometimes felt free to alter historical facts for theological or literary reasons. So one of the things I do in the book is that I examine those arguments in detail. I even go into Greco-Roman literature that is used to defend this view and Then, so as well, on the one hand, there's both a negative and a positive side to my project. I uh, critique and refute those claims about the Gospels. And then on the positive side, I provide additional evidence, including undesigned coincidence, but other types of arguments as well, uh, that the Gospels are presenting history in a a factual way. And that the factual standards of historical reporting that we have, where we're saying, You know, are they telling the truth? That's not anachronistic at all. That's a perfectly legitimate question, and it was a question that was important to the original authors. Uh, Then I'm also working on writing a book applying these ideas, just very specifically to the Gospel of John. There's John material in the Mirror of the Mask, the Mirror of the Mask, but I'm also writing a follow-up book uh, to appear the next year on just the Gospel of John, to be called The Eye of the Beholder. And right now, while the Mirror of the Mask is out uh, getting blurbs, people are reading a advanced copy and working on their blurb, I'm working on writing The Eye of the Beholder. Uh, I've also done a big um, series on the Gospel of John of scholarly blog posts, and I'll be using that material in, in the book, and people can find you know that material online as well. So I've got both of those that I'm working on, and it, it's Lord willing and we get our blurbs in time, we hope the mirror of the mask will be out before the first of the year of 2020.
0: Well, uh, two more books I'll have to add to my shelf, and will definitely recommend to others. Uh, if you could, one more question, and, and then we'll let you go. If you could give advice, and this is helpful for me uh, as well, if you could give advice to church leaders about teaching the Bible, what would it be?
1: You know, it was funny you said that about bringing people back to the in a sense, simple view that that the Bible is here to tell us the historical truth and not to overcomplicate it. And I, I want to pick up on that. I think that um, church leaders, pastors, you know, they want to be scholar- scholarly. They want to make use of scholarship. But I want to, to say, as you're doing that, don't accept uncritically what you're told. Uh, or be cowed by credentials. If something sounds off to you, if it sounds questionable to you, look into it yourself. You know, don't think you have to accept it uh, because it's what you're hearing from every side, even from scholars that have a conservative label affixed to them. And there are a lot of theories out there flying or out around there. So be willing to, to question things. Um, and that's as part of preparing yourself to teach. You know, when you want to go to teach, here's an example. Uh, we were talking about these things being significant because they are true. I use a phrase um, that I invented. The phrase is fake points don't make points. Fake points don't make points. So if Jesus didn't really take the little children up into his arms and bless them, then you can't use that passage to argue that Jesus loves little children. If Jesus didn't really breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Ghost, then you shouldn't be preaching on that passage to argue that Jesus empowers the ministry. So if you're going to go preach, um, always be really honest with with the people. You know, if you think something isn't historical, don't go preaching on it, pretending for the people in the pew that you think it's historical because, you know, you think they can't handle the truth. But at the same time, be willing to uh, to consider that maybe scholars that are causing you to question the historicity are wrong, and you can actually reclaim that, that historicity that, yeah, you know, John really is historical. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to question it, because the authors themselves understood that fake points don't make points. It's not like they had some special ancient view where they were allowed to make up facts any more than, than we do. The other piece of advice I would give is to read old books. And I know this is hard, because the Bible teacher and church leader, he's got ministry going on. He's, he's you know, visiting the sick and comforting the bereaved, and praying, and all of that, and counseling, and then he's got all these books that he, you know, loved to read, and they're coming hot off the press. Well, you know, if you've got a choice of reading a new book just because it's new, and reading Paley's Whore Paul and I, read Paley. You know, read it instead. Don't feel... C.S. Lewis once wrote in a letter, he says I don't know why I should be expected to... Um, be familiar with the book just because its author happened to live at the same time that I do. And I think that's a really, uh, that's really why. It's not like you have to live under a rock, but I think a lot of times the past and that democracy of the dead and the community of saints can really give us more insight than the latest book that's hot off the press that everybody's talking about on on Facebook. Um, And I say this as someone who's writing new books myself, but even so... Um, I'm trying to use that to introduce people to the older authors to read old books. That would be another piece of evidence uh, or a piece of advice that I would give to the, the Bible teacher and the pastor.
0: Man, that's just just so great! What a wonderful time it was uh, the last few minutes to be with you. And again, thank you so much for your hard work. Uh, thank you for the book, Hidden in Plain View: Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospel and Acts. Uh, I love the McGrews. Uh, Dr. Tim came down when I first started my nonprofit to Birmingham and, and really helped me out. And uh, it was it was at a time when we were young and growing, and, and he did some of these things for us. I, I, I'm a big fan of the McGrew family, and uh, we, we will be praying for you here. I look forward to seeing you soon in New Orleans at the DEFEND Conference. And just we hope for the best and blessings to you and your family.
1: Thank you. The Lord's blessing on your ministry too, Matt, and I look forward to meeting you in New Orleans.